you can wipe the doe-eyed Bambi watching his mother get shot and strapped to the back of a van from your face. Welcome back to another episode of Replaying Favorites, the podcast where two friends watch movies that they love in order for the other one to maybe love them almost the same. Chris, how are you doing? I can't wait to love a movie that you love. Bree, how are you? <laughs> Great. Thank you for asking. I really do appreciate that. This week, we are going to watch 13 Going on 30, or as it's known in Australia, Suddenly 30. <laughs> One of my favorite things is movies known by other names in different countries, especially other countries that are also English speaking. So it makes no sense why there would be a different name for it. So this is a 2004 movie. I think this is our first movie of the 2000s. Am I right about that? I think you are. Oh, we had both graduated college by the time this movie came out. I know. Suddenly 40. Oh, let's not talk about it. <laughs> it's your classic coming of age story where a teen suddenly finds themselves in the body of an adult and they got to figure out what to do and hijinks ensue. So I don't think I really want to say any more. Chris, do you know anything about this movie? I mean, I know that it is a Jennifer Garner vehicle where she where she is suddenly 30. I realized as we were talking about it, I couldn't figure out why I thought that there was a wedding involved. And I realized that there's a movie where someone is a bridesmaid like a hundred times. And I think this that's something else. I don't even think that's a Jennifer Garner movie. It's like always a bridesmaid or some shit. Oh, it's 13 Dresses. That's what it is. Yeah, this is one of the few like girl movies I've seen. So I'll be interested to see what you think. I love it. Yeah, I mean, I've never seen 13 Dresses either, which I think I, they just both have 13 in the title. And I just uh, <laughs> spliced them in my mind. Like, as soon as you said 13 going on 30, I just had this image of 13 wedding dresses. Then I was like, oh, nope. So you are to numbers what I am to people's faces. I guess so. I just, you know, they're two like, quote unquote, girl movies with a number in the title. They're like schrodinger's chick flick we're just like i don't know which is which until i hit play <laughs> okay we are gonna watch 13 going on 30 and we will be back after the break all right welcome back i believe both of us have now watched 13 going on 30 and i feel old in lots of ways <laughs> It stars Jennifer Garner, Mark Ruffalo, Judy Greer, and Andy Serkis. It also stars an extremely small Brie Larson, uh, who made her film debut, I believe, at 13 as one of Judy's friends. Uh, it's directed by Gary Winnick. His other big movie before this was Tadpole, uh, which is about Sigourney Weaver and B.B. Newworth fighting over a 15-year-old boy, which ticks a lot of boxes except for that last one. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was really on board with Tadpole, and now I don't think I'll be seeing Tadpole. But yeah, this is not a tremendously well-known director. Uh, similarly, the two writers also worked on King of Queens and a couple of other things, but this is sort of one of their big pictures. So I think the only other comment I have about the cast at the full stop is that Judy Greer is apparently the new J.T. Walsh. She has done 86 movies since 1998, to say nothing of her many, many TV appearances. Good for Judy Greer. Can't say enough good about her. And I'm sure we'll have to edit approximately 20 minutes of me just going over her good qualities during this podcast. I mean, they're so great. She's always so funny and so good. So Chris, any first thoughts about 13 going on 30? What do you want to share? 
I'll say going in that I really wanted to like this movie. No! And (laughs) there are parts of it that I really liked. I don't think that I overall found it to be a good movie. Oh, I'm sorry. I hope I wasn't unclear that I don't think this is a good movie. It's just one of my favorites. (laughs) I understand why you like it. And there are certainly parts of it where I was like, oh, I am very much drawn right in. I think that the reveal that this was written by uh, sitcom TV writers makes a great deal of sense. This has a very Emperor's New Groove feel of like, (laughs) we have vignettes that work and they are together in a movie, but not necessarily because they're supposed to be a 90 minute movie. I think that's right. I think in a lot of ways it wanted to be a series of live action music videos because there's multiple scenes of dancing in groups, which I actually find really delightful, but it's definitely light on plot. Though I was surprised by many of the plot elements. For instance, this is a fucking time travel movie. (laughs) I told well, I guess I said it was like big, but I didn't express that it was time travel. Yeah, I assumed that it was like big in that she was a teenager who woke up as an adult contemporaneously. So at first I was like, oh, this is a period piece. And then she traveled 17 years into the future, I was not prepared. Yeah, I guess I just feel like it has so many correlations with Big. In fact, you could cast an amazing version of Big that has both Jennifer Garner and Tom Hanks in it, like perhaps the two most charming people on Earth. Similar to the Judy Greerness, I could speak for approximately the length of this film about how charming Jennifer Garner is. And a lot of the reviews at the time said that this is a very slight movie that is absolutely flying to whatever heights it flies on the back of Jennifer Garner's just goodwill and just complete dedication to the role. She's so great. There's this scene when Mark Ruffalo is walking away from the first time after he takes her to her apartment and she just like flashes this smile at him. And I was like, I don't think there's anyone in this world who wouldn't just be like, sure, whatever you want and need, Jennifer Garner. I got you. The cast in general is doing a good deal of heavy lifting here between Jennifer Garner, Judy Greer and Mark Ruffalo. They come together to make this a watchable film that would otherwise be completely unmemorable. If you asked me what the main thrust of this movie was about, I think I would say like she's at a magazine, but like I kind of forget about the redesign every time. We'll get back to the redesign until I see the redesigns and then I'm horrified again each time. (laughs) I have definite plot critiques about the whole magazine (laughs) subplot. It does not hold up to scrutiny. Let's step back to 1987 and talk a little bit about the very beginning of the film. I think I speak for many children when I say that picture day is horrible And I do kind of love that it opens with a truly horrific picture day because I have functionally similar set of pictures from about seventh and eighth grade. Oh, me as well. I remember distinctly in the eighth grade, they for some reason did the pictures after gym. And so (laughs) I I just looked so fucking bedraggled. I was not an athletic (laughs) child. Like I was in my most awkward phase, and then had just spent an hour, like, running around. (laughs) There's a picture of me from kindergarten where I've got two a pigtail on either side of my head, and one is about, like, three and a half inches down from the other one. 
<laughs> and I definitely looked at that picture sometime in my teens and just asked my mother, like, what did you do to me here? And she's like, oh, sure. I sent you to school that way. I think that's how you looked when you left the house. I just, I never understand how they expect kids to pull this off. It just, it's a dark time. It's a dark time. I think that that is captured well here. I like the girl who plays young Jennifer Garner. I think she's a good physical match she has Mm -hmm. the same sort of earnest energy they have a similar vibe and the judy greer analog is also pretty good too like that girl's a little bitch it's funny because they multiple times discuss how judy greer has had a good amount of plastic surgery which is insane because she looks exactly like the girl who played her at 13 yeah, it's a pretty straightforward setup. You get introduced to a lot of the pieces of Jenna's life. She loves Rick Springfield. Uh, she's a very beta girl who's trying to get in with the alpha girls. There is no girl more dangerous, uh, and I can speak from experience, <laughs> than uh, that kind of girl. Because, you know, she's to try to win the affection of these girls who are never going to like her. She's mean to her best friend. She basically commits all of the young woman crimes that one can commit. I will say that the beginning of this movie felt very procedural almost to me. We had a lot of plot details to get in, but we also knew that we had to get to the main crux of the movie. So it definitely Mm -hmm. feels like we are hitting all of the details as quickly as we can to rocket her into the future. The sets in the show are really well done. All of the homes that they have a really lived in feel, perhaps because these were TV writers, there is a lot more attention paid to like locations because they're going to spend a lot of time in each of those locations. So I think that might be why they put so much time and effort into some of the set design like there's a really cute piece in the closet where jenna goes to do her seven minutes in heaven there's a growth chart Hmm. that like some production assistant took the time to make that shows jenna being measured every year from the time she's like small up through she's 12 and it has like pictures and stars and like really cute stuff so they spent a lot of time working on those which arguably maybe they should have put into the main story but there are a lot of nice little details that kind of give you the sense in this first scene that she's very close with her family, you know, that they they have kind of like a, a, a nice growing up. And I think that that's why it's kind of sad later when she realizes she's not close to her family. It's so funny because the set design team clearly feels like they researched deeply what the 80s actually looked like. And the costume and hair and makeup people just thought about what the 80s might have been in their vague memory of a 2000s sitcom flashing back to the 80s. Let's just jump ahead and talk about the costumes a little bit because Jennifer Garner routinely looks like she's stuck in about 1997 and not 1987. Her look never makes sense throughout this movie. It's not cohesive. It changes scene to scene. It would be one thing if she started very, very 80s and slowly learned to keep up with the times, but instead she's just... It's like they put her clothes on shuffle. So the first time she dresses herself is when they're going to the thriller party. Mm -hmm. And that dress she picks out is not 80s. It's physically too small for Jennifer Garner. Like, they gave her such crazy double boobs. She's not a huge breasted woman. I don't even know how that happens. And I was just, like, concerned that she was going to fly out of it because she's about to do thriller. The hair doesn't look like it's from the 80s. It's got that, like, spiky stuff that's from the 90s. It's very all over the place. It was clear from the instant the popular girls showed up at the beginning that they didn't have a grasp of what the 80s actually looked like. Those girls are dressed like a party city bagged Halloween costume of the 80s. (laughs) Yeah, little Lucy, little Tom Tom, is wearing cons, which, like, 
kids did not wear in the 80s. I remember the 80s. The costuming is a real letdown throughout this movie. I just don't see them actually thinking about the character, the time period. It's never like, I am someone in an office in the 2000s who thinks that I'm in the 80s. Like you, That's like a very basic concept that they're not even considering. It, it just makes no sense. It doesn't even look like what the same kid would pick out. Uh, similarly, her makeup, which I'm going to guess you have a few things to talk about. She's getting ready for the party. And the movie actually makes it a point of comedy is that she's putting on like too much 80s makeup. And then in the next scene, she's just wearing like normal 2004 makeup for a party. I cannot tell you how let down I was that she didn't have a somewhat sloppy application of makeup. She is not someone who has done this a lot. She's putting on fake eyelashes. Which I don't even think she's wearing in the next scene. And to be fair, sometimes if you have not stuck the landing on that, better to just abort. So I <laughs> I can agree with her that she might have made the appropriate decision of just giving up. <laughs> but the film puts all this makeup on her and then she gets in the elevator and she's just wearing completely normal makeup. This is maybe like nerdy and uninteresting, but apparently it is very common in film to avoid doing period accurate makeup because it would be jarring. But I think <laughs> in a comedy, you can really lean into being jarring, especially because like you said, they spent a good montage making the joke. You may as well pay it off. I think one of the things that's great about Big is that it really commits to the bit. And Jennifer Garner is doing a lot. You know, she's a kid making decisions in the body of an adult, but the rest of the movie around her, as you said, isn't brave enough to actually lean into those choices to make her look like a wildebeest at that party. I don't want to spend the whole podcast just shitting on the costume department, but like they <laughs> really did not show up. The production design team did again show up by creating a whole Jenna's dream house um, that I think is actually extremely cute. Obviously, the conceit of this movie is a little silly. He puts some magic dust or glitter on top of the house, and we're supposed to believe that enough of the glitter is still there after she whips it at him. He then takes it home, rebuilds it, puts it in his closet for 25 years, gets it down for her, hands it to her. She walks outside with it, but there's still enough glitter on it to make her wishes come true. As someone who has worked with a lot of glitter, you can never get rid of that shit. I absolutely believe that glitter would be stuck with you for 17 years. <laughs> I have tried for an hour to get glitter off of my floor and failed. So if you just left the glitter to sit, it would absolutely hang out and possibly multiply. Have you tried making wishes about being 30, flirty, and thriving? Now that I'm 40, I will start making those wishes, <laughs> yes. Also, if you do go back a decade in time, could you fucking warn us about... <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jesus. Yeah. Like, any... I mean, you'd be going back to 2010, so... We'll make a list and we'll see how much glitter you can get together and then we'll see if it works. Everyone grab your glitter and make some notes. <laughs> We've got work to do. Put the note in your teeth and then throw the glitter over your head. Oh, Jesus. After she is beglittered, uh, Jennifer Garner wakes up in her apartment and she is very surprised to find herself 30. I actually think this is a pretty cute scene of physical comedy from Garner. Yeah, this whole intro section was wild to me, again, because I wasn't expecting the time jump. And it does immediately overcomplicate itself because I'm like, oh, she has to get used to being an adult, figuring out what happened in her own life over the past 17 years, figuring out what happened in the entire world over the past 17 years. <laughs> like, the thing about her 
not knowing what her cell phone is, it's not just that she has to figure out to answer it. You will have to spend a lot of time explaining to her how a cell phone works, what it does, how to use it. She doesn't know how to do anything. What she really needs is Mila Jovovich to show her Wikipedia and like the entire war category because she will have missed a lot. Like the invasion of Iraq. It's interesting that we are trusted to just accept that she does that learning on her own rather than giving some sort of montage. And I guess I like that, but it does the entire time then feel like, how the fuck does she know that? Most time travel films obviously go backward in time uh, when it is easier for the person to be aware of events because they've read about them in a book or whatever. Obviously, Back to the Future 2 jumps to the future. And Marty is really freaked out. Like, Elizabeth Shue is really freaked out. Like, they have a really terrible time in the future, partly because the future is terrible, but also because they have no context for what is happening around them. And Jenna definitely just kind of leans right into her job as a magazine executive, which in fairness, it does not seem like you need any skills to perform. So it's fine. People notice that she is behaving strangely, but no one seems perturbed enough to intervene, even though we are given ample evidence that her personality has done a 180 overnight. I think the most extreme example of this, and this is jumping forward a little bit, is when she goes home to her parents. So imagine you're the mom. You haven't talked to your daughter in a long time. She missed last Christmas. She shows up. She's at the house. She gets into bed with you guys. And the next morning, you have to make her pancakes with cut up strawberries and a glass of milk. At this point, I would be calling the family physician. Clearly, something has occurred in her life that is extremely bad. And everyone just treats it as like, oh, you know, Jenna's just being a little weird. Yeah, they don't just find her in the home. They find her crying in the basement closet. There is a really cute moment that since we're talking about that, that it brings up that both she and her father choose an umbrella as their weapon of choice when confronted with a stranger in the house. It's a very cute moment for me. That is adorable. It is less adorable that she is, like you said, regressing in a very real way. And everyone just seems comforted by that. Oh, her horrible personality is gone. What a relief. Let's embrace it. I mean, I guess there's a comment in there about how not close Jenna is to anyone in her life that they either don't notice or don't care about this radical personality change because they're just so relieved. I do want to give a shout out to Kathy Baker, who plays her mom. One of my all-time favorite performances, she plays Joyce in Edward Scissorhands, the woman with the giant red hair who is extremely sexual towards Johnny Depp. And it was great (laughs) to see her in this, like, comforting mom role. I had to look up. I was like, I know her from somewhere. And then I was like... Oh, she was very different in another movie. So Jenna is suddenly 30. Um, There are a couple cute little gags that she does quite well. I especially love it when she grabs her boobs and she's pretty excited about those. And the one piece of writing that I think is actually pretty tight in a movie that where I don't think the writing is that tight is that Lucy gives Jenna a little motivational speech because she thinks she's hungover before they walk into the meeting. And it actually covers a lot of territory about who Jen is, what she is. They get into the office and there there are a couple quick little jokes that I've always really liked. There's the M&M joke where she's asked, <laughs> she says, plain no peanut. And then <laughs> Andy Circus asks her, who's your daddy? And she's like, Wayne Rank. <laughs> I wrote that down as a line delivery that deserved an Oscar all on its own. The, the chipperness with which she dove in Wayne Rink. She's happy to know the answer to something in a situation where she is completely lost. And it's just like so earnest. It's perfect. Because it's the only thing she's felt confident about in a few hours. So it's pretty exciting. <laughs> I really do think Jennifer Garner needs a lot of credit for this movie. It is such a 
a deeply charming performance. Like the joke on paper, who's your daddy, Wayne Ring? It's it's funny, but it's not that funny. But her delivery like really elevates it. And similarly, some of the romantic storyline makes absolutely no sense. And she also elevates that and like makes you emotionally invested in that well. And also the kind of mean girls back and forth between her and Lucy is also, I think, really enhanced by Gardner's performance. I do not think she gets enough credit as an actor, full stop. Oh, she's wonderful. I have adored her in just everything. Since we brought up the romantic storyline, I do also want to gush a little about Mark Ruffalo. He is perfectly cast as literally any romantic lead at any time. Mark Ruffalo does this one thing towards the end of the film after they uh, have had the razzles and she says, can I tell you a secret? Like, you're the sweetest guy I know. And he just does this like little shrug and turn. And I was just like, Okay. It's funny because if you showed me just a picture of Mark Ruffalo, he's not unattractive by any means, but I wouldn't necessarily swoon. But he's such a perfect example of how important charisma is because as soon as he's on screen, I'm like, oh, I would say it's funny how attractive he is, but I am dead fucking serious about it. Like, I would marry the man. Oh, yeah, instantaneously. I mean, it it does help that he seems like a pretty decent human in actual life as well. He's especially well cast here as a completely amorphous photographer. I really like that their description of him is he's like, I'm not sure if your magazine is into my kind of stuff. And his stuff appears to just be like group shots taken from just the middle. Yes, in the same way that the costume department is sometimes a letdown, I think maybe the art direction there didn't have a concept for what a photographer does. It, it does seem like that the folks who wrote and directed this movie didn't know what jobs were. Like <laughs> Most of Mark Ruffalo's career is him playing actually decent people. And I think that that's a big part of it because we get a lot of men who are trash. So he's been good about cultivating that in his career, I guess. And that's particularly important in the context of this plot because he is seemingly the only person who actually is concerned about Jenna. She shows up at his apartment after 17 years. Well, they went to high school together. So we'll say 12, 13 years of not talking. But he has a real careful physicality with her. And he like makes the choice to walk her home and makes sure she has what she needs. I think that he's the only person who recognizes that she might need help. Yeah, he's even a good enough guy that he comes to this party. And it's it's never super clear why he comes to the party for me because he doesn't seem like he's going to, but obviously the movie needs him to do that thing. At that point, it'd be a little bit more interesting, maybe script-wise, if he had come to see if she was actually doing okay later in the day, and then seeing that she's fine, he decides to leave. But instead, he needs to come and dance Thriller. Um, What did you think about that scene? I think that is the first draft of a good scene. Um, (laughs) I have notes. One, one of my best friends is a DJ, so I have to stress to you that you do not go up to the DJ and make drunken requests. Don't do it. (laughs) Does the DJ often sometimes get so excited about the song that they're playing that they jump out from behind the DJ booth and go dance with the crowd? They do if they're a bad enough DJ that instead of transitioning to the song, they literally just stop and leave 10 (laughs) seconds of silence before they turn their fucking thriller record on. 
Jenna definitely drinks a lot in this movie, and especially in the thriller scene in particular. Oh, yeah, she is solidly drunk by that point, because she has a 13-year-old's tolerance, even though she is an adult who has been drinking like this for a while, one assumes. Like, her 30-year-old body should actually be able to handle a lot of alcohol. However, unlike Tom Cruise, I think Jennifer Garner plays a very charming drunk and actually a very good drunk. There's a moment where a waitress comes to bring her another pina colada and she just looks at her and I'm like, oh yeah, you seem drunk actually. She also nails the dancing, I have to say. She's a really good dancer actually, I think. I think she's she and Circus are actually the two good ones. I do like that Ruffalo is kind of bad. I think it's actually a nice touch for Matt's character. I don't know if Mark Ruffalo just is a bad dancer, but yeah, Jennifer Garner's really kind of got the moves for Thriller, actually. I will say that it makes zero sense that everyone at this party knows the Thriller dance. It would have been very easy to just be like, she requests the electric slide. Everyone knows how to do the electric slide. It has a drunk white people at a wedding vibe. Like, I think that that scene wanted to capture the electric slide energy, but for some reason put the thriller dance in instead. Also, the electric slide is a funnish dance to do in a group. It's not a funnish dance to watch a group do. Like, it makes completely no sense. But would I like to watch Jennifer Garner lead a group of people in thriller? Yes, I'm fine with it. The thriller scene was the first time that I wondered, is Andy Serkis playing a gay man? This has got to be the most normal character that Andy Serkis has ever played, and he is still just one note off Mr. Bean. It is an outfitting and facial hair that suggests that Rowan Atkinson was not available. I will also say that it is a level of manic energy that helps me to understand why he is rarely cast as a human. I mean, I guess he had just finished Gollum, right? Because the Lord of the Rings comes out around this time. So he was at like the height of his like sort of Andy circusness. I think King Kong also comes around this time when I think he also plays a pretty wild character. Someone should have reined him in just a little, but also this movie is a madcap sitcom. So who cares? Listen, aside from Jennifer Garner, I don't think anyone here is doing their like Oscar level work. But usually I like seeing Andy Serkis. And like every time he appeared on the screen, I was like, oh, all right, <laughs> like, let's keep moving. I wanted to like him in the same way that I wanted to like this movie. Uh, but I <laughs> was only mildly successful in either pursuit. That's fair. So in other scenes of Jenna drinking and getting way too drunk for, as you point out, a woman who drinks all the time, I do like how much 13 going on 30 posits that jenna takes to drinking like a fish like she goes from day one being like oh no i should oh i can have a drink to being like there is a scene in this movie that i cringe every time when i remember that it's going to happen again which is when lucy tells jenna that there's a guy staring at her and she goes over and she hits on that small child when that happened i will say i guffawed that she <laughs> approached this actual like 12 year old it's so inappropriate that i just cack i couldn't believe that they let it happen now that i know that the same director also directed a movie about sigourney weaver and bb newworth hitting on a 15 year old a lot of pieces are clicking into place for me i also had a question about why that child is there he seems to be <laughs> alone at a booth in what is otherwise a bar <laughs> Okay, there is another plate across from him. Presumably his parent has gone to the bathroom or something, leaving him open to the crazy drunken affliction of 
Jennifer Garner just hitting on children at a bar. It also is a nice scene because Judy Greer has a great line right after she, after she hauls uh, Jenna out of the bar, which is, what do you want to do? Go to jail? I meant that guy. Judy Greer is from Detroit and went to college in Chicago, and her Midwest accent just absolutely busts through whatever vocal training she's done, and I love it. <laughs> it's funny because she on the one hand, knows it's bad, but doesn't react like someone who has seen something truly abhorrent, which she maybe should. (laughs) That's a really good point. I mean, there are a lot of points here where really people who are actual adults should really be observing the world around them and what this woman is doing. And your friend hitting on a, a child is probably about time for you to be like, hey, we need to have a talk about your drinking at the very least. I get that Tom Tom is not intended to be an example of the moral high ground by any means, but even for someone who's kind of a bitch, I feel like child molestation is probably off the table. Yeah, it seems like she's just like vaguely uncomfortable with the idea of child molestation as opposed to repelled by the idea, which is ideally what you want in any functioning human. We can only go so deep in a comedy. I think if this movie took a hard turn into everyone having an intervention for Jennifer Garner, it might not have been (laughs) as fluffy as we want it to be. I suppose that's true. Other people who don't seem to notice Jenna's behavior is a little weird are is her boyfriend, um, who I think <laughs> so he also gets to do a hilarious striptease. I actually really love that guy. It's nice that they wrote the part so that he's just sort of a fluffy puppy and not like a super creep ball because that scene where he thinks they're gonna have sex could take a real kind of gross turn, but that guy is just doofy enough that it kind of plays for charming. I think especially coming fairly soon after her hitting on a child, the threat that she was going to have to deal with a full-on adult having sex with her made me very worried. I was desperate for her to get away from that apartment, and I'm very glad that she weaseled out of it unmolested, but I had a full, like, panic moment. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the movie does do its best to downplay it by having him both do a strip tease to Ice Ice Baby and be wearing tidy whities while doing it. It's so completely unsexy from like an empirical perspective. It does raise a lot of questions about if that's the sexy dance that he does for the real Jenna to turn her on. It raises a lot of questions for me. I want to call out one of the better acting moments that she has in a series of perfect acting moments. Her reaction when he kisses her ear is this, like, it is a hundred emotions all turned up to 11. She is shocked. She can't believe it's happening. She is amused and finds it hilarious. She's horrified that it's happening. She spins the wheel on her emotional, like, facial expressions. And it's just so wonderful to watch, even though it is deeply inappropriate given her age uh, internally. Everything she's doing in this performance is exceedingly cute. And you you never forget that she's a kid inside, which I think is actually very difficult to do as an adult actor. Like you have to really be thoughtful and in touch with that part of your personality to be able to do that. There's another specific acting choice that is not done by Jennifer Garner, but is done by the other man that Jenna has to interact with and that she's also sleeping with, who is the husband of one of the other workers at the magazine. That man is doing his best Nicolas Cage impression And it's not successful. I don't know what's going on. He's so wild. I have a lot of questions about everything about that character. Mostly what his character is meant to imply about Jenna. Because we have learned that 
she is sleeping with conservatively one of the dumbest men that I've ever seen. <laughs> and also the husband of a coworker who has perhaps no redeeming qualities. There's nothing enjoyable or sexy about him. She can't get anything out of this. It just seems to imply she'll fuck anyone because why not? And also that, like, apparently everyone at the office knows because her administrative assistant, Annette, I believe, definitely knows enough because she gives us, like, a very disapproving look. She makes a very pointed comment about it to Jenna, which, given their apparent relationship at the start of the movie is surprising how much she just does a heel turn into like <laughs> standing up for herself. It just seemed like a weird, almost like slut shaming moment in the script of just being like, this guy is disgusting and married to someone else, but she will fully make out with him in front of the large glass wall <laughs> that is not frosted fully above her head. So the whole office can see what they're doing and she doesn't care. I guess we never see who Judy Greer sleeps with. So like maybe what the movie is trying to say is that like bitchy women just don't have anything to go on. I mean, there's another part of the movie, which is that if you aren't nice and if you are very selfish, you don't exactly attract the best dudes. Yeah, I suppose. It was it was a weird thing for me, but it's also over fairly quickly and we move on to something else. That's true. Obviously, Jenna winds up having a sort of existential crisis when she realizes that the person that she thought she was going to be at 30 is very different from the person that she is at 30. Uh, that winds up with the aforementioned trip to her parents' uh, closet to cry it out. And the other part of this existential crisis is that Poise, the magazine that she's always wanted to work for, is going to have to undergo a redesign, which is a word that didn't terrify me in any way. Um, <laughs> like he said, we're going to have to deal with the dreaded R word. And I was like, oh, redundancies. Like I never, I've seen this movie a bunch of times and I never guess what Andy Serkis is going to say. I mean, nothing about this movie suggests that anyone did any research into the magazine industry. So I can't imagine that that's anything other than an invention. So let's talk a little bit about the subplot here, which is that Jenna, this twist at the end is that Jenna has been giving the magazine covers to their competition, Sparkle Magazine. But it appears that what she's doing is like sending copies, or I guess Sparkle is sending copies of their front pages to Jenna to her house. It doesn't even make any sense. Like the reveal of that doesn't even make any sense. Like there are several layers to this that are ridiculous. One, that they're doing it by snail mail at all. <laughs> <laughs> seems strange. This is the kind of thing that you have a phone conversation about so that you don't have a record, or at the very least, emails that you delete. But full envelopes with postage seems almost quaint as a way to commit corporate espionage. Also, you can see on the front of the envelopes, it's Jenna's home address. So they were sent to her house. She then brought them to work like a genius and left them in her top drawer for everyone to find. The other, and this is a larger structural complaint, ostensibly this movie is about her fixing things as an adult. She is trying to turn around her 30-year-old self's mistakes, but she objectively does not save the magazine. At the end of the movie, Judy Greer steals her idea again, goes to their competition, and there's no resolution to that. The magazine is going to fold. Actually, it's not going to because she's going to go back in time and make different choices, so she's never even going to be there. I guess. It just seems like, ostensibly, she's trying to make more moral decisions, but her... Two jobs are to save the magazine and to solidify a romance. But what she's actually doing is tanking a magazine and breaking up a marriage. Yeah, <laughs> I know it's actually quite bad. 
But yeah, the magazine subplot overall makes no sense. I do want to give a special shout out to whoever designed Judy Greer's redesigned like PowerPoint video thing. It is legitimately atrocious. And I think it's supposed to be. I think it's supposed to be the bad one, but I do think it's still supposed to be like kind of cool. Like I do think they are trying to like lean into heroin chic, but it's just bad. However, Jenna's redesign is also extremely bad. I don't know a lot about fashion magazines, but I know that neither of those things is it. Jenna sells her idea better. And I think that her description of wanting a magazine that looks like the people you know, and that looks like your friends does have an appeal to it. It seems odd that a presentation obviously put together by a 13-year-old who is a B-minus student, probably, gets a full ovation from a boardroom, which literally never happens in a business. Andy Serkis is crying. It is the major failing of the movie, to my mind, because both presentations are so bad. The material is so bad. I think the mo- both magazines should fold, and I don't care about any of the corporate part of this at all. The thriller scene is the most I'm invested in the future of the magazine. I also don't necessarily have a great understanding of why Judy Greer is backstabbing her friend like this. And there's never any explanation beyond like, well, she's a bitch. I think that's the explanation. I don't think (laughs) the characterization is particularly deep. I will say Judy Greer does give good unredeemable bitch. For what it is, it's very good. In bringing up little girls, I have a lot of questions about the parents letting a gaggle of preteens sleep over at a stranger's apartment. The sleepover scene provides the second opportunity for a dance party to an 80s song. If you start to ask questions about it, it makes even less sense than you think it that it possibly could. It's never even occurred to me that they were at her apartment. I thought she went to a different child sleepover, which is actually a better explanation. It's still bad, but it's it's much less bad than especially given her her history of like harassing teen boys. It is <laughs> It is much less bad in my formulation where she has simply attended a sleepover of 13-year-old girls as opposed to hosting the sleepover of 13-year-old girls. No, it is unsettling to see that many children in a lone adult's home. Especially because from the parents in this movie's perspective, this woman has been a ice-cold bitch and is now suddenly extremely friendly to all the children in the building. Yeah, if a stranger just started having alone conversations every day in the elevator with my daughter, I'd be like, oh, this is grooming behavior. Yeah, because it is grooming behavior. (laughs) Like, because, again, not everybody realizes that Jenna is just another 13-year-old girl. I did also like that they established early on that she is rich enough to take cabs everywhere so that it made sense why she wasn't forever lost in the city and never knew how to get back to her apartment. My God, I've never thought about that. She came from like some suburb somewhere and suddenly she's literally thrown into the midst of New York. And again, from her perspective, New York would have been a lot rougher in 1987 than it was in 2004. So she's probably expecting an entirely different lifestyle than the one she had. Yeah, we've just got to skip over all of that because if we ask any questions at all, then we only reveal more questions. Yeah. Also, Jim Gaffigan is in this movie. He plays, of course, the boy that she wanted to always go out with, who is now a taxi driver driving her home so that she can go 
break up a marriage. Good God. I have never met a 30-year-old who is so tapped into everyone they went to middle school with. (laughs) I mean, again, perhaps more from Jim Gaffigan's perspective, where why is he so excited to meet this woman that he hasn't seen in, again, 12 or 13 years? She, it makes sense why she's so invested in these middle school relationships. There are so many pieces of this that you didn't have to include, and it would actually make the story tighter. You know, we've skated around... Mark Ruffalo being engaged for this whole discussion, I think we just need to dive right into the fact that Mark Ruffalo is engaged to be married in two weeks when this movie begins. And the movie treats that as nothing of an impediment. I will say he has a type. They definitely put out a casting call for a Jennifer Garner type, and they got one. The actress who plays Wendy does a really great job as well, that I think in the script, Wendy could be extremely bland, because Wendy never says anything very overtly that she knows what the fuck is going on here. But the woman playing Wendy gives a very cold performance anytime Jennifer Garner is around, and I like it. Yeah, she has the exact forced friendliness that you would put on for someone that you know is spending way too much time with her fiancé. I was really impressed how she was never anything other than perfectly kind to Jennifer Garner, Yeah, but nonetheless conveyed a deep distrust and hatred of this woman. There's also that scene where after Wendy is talking about how Mark Ruffalo has gone off to get his tuxedo, blah, 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 and disappointing Jennifer Garner, and she closes the door in her face, and Jennifer Garner stands there, and then her face falls because she's really upset. And I'm always like, you know that bitch is looking through the peephole. You gotta turn. Like, you gotta turn and go away. Don't let her see you cry, because she's definitely gonna know that she's right. That's amazing. I never could tell... If the movie was actively trying to get us to dislike his fiance, or if we were just meant to ignore the fact that she had accepted a proposal from a man. Like, I couldn't tell if she was <laughs> bad lady or just like, don't worry about her. I think it's supposed to set up a contrast between Jennifer Garner, who like really supports him and his career of mediocre photography versus Wendy, who quite rightly realizes that he could do that level of mediocrity anywhere, including Chicago, apparently. Um, I like that the worst thing that a New Yorker can think of is that like you could pursue your career in Chicago. (laughs) (laughs) It is very clear that is being seen as a step down to like leave New York. Oh, yeah, that's one of the most accurate things in this movie, I will say. Okay. Not that I personally believe that, but Uh I think the attitude that leaving New York is admitting defeat is so prevalent here that I absolutely did not question it when it came up in this movie. I heard the tone in your voice. I know how you feel. The other thing that I want to cover in terms of the Wendy-Jenna contrast Mm. is that Mark Ruffalo is, I think, genuinely in love with this adult woman who seems (laughs) nice, if a little cold. But again, we only see her when she is trying to fend off advances on her soon-to-be husband. (laughs) And dealing with her distracted-ass boyfriend who she's marrying in a moment. On the flip side of that, he is falling in love with Jenna, who, yes, he has known since childhood, but who is in every way exhibiting the behavior of a 13-year-old girl. He never seems to really truly believe that she's a 13-year-old who's time-traveled to the present. Mm -hmm. So in that case, she's maybe having some sort of a crisis, and maybe now is not the time to rekindle a romantic relationship or even a friendship with someone that you haven't seen in a dozen years. On top of the fact that, again, the impending wedding, it's... (laughs) 
Another sign that maybe a new girlfriend isn't in the cards today. <laughs> there, there is a really shocking level of both women just have no interest or concept in like his self-autonomy or like what he would like to do. Wendy's like moving him to Chicago and finding him new jobs. Jenna apparently just tells him to show up at the park one day. He shows up and she's like, oh, I've booked you for the next two weeks. What if he had something else to do? What if he didn't want to work for the magazine? She's already got the people there. That was one of the times when I really knew that these people don't know what a photographer does because <laughs> the assumption is that literally all he had to do was bring equipment and press the button. She has done all <laughs> all of the art direction of this photo shoot that presumably a photographer would like some say in. That's because he's just a mediocre photographer. Like, there's no sense whatsoever that he's doing something spectacular there, which is probably why all the women in his life just march him around. I just couldn't help but be a little uncomfortable with the idea that she is not behaving like an adult, and he yeah. is still very attracted to that. I know there are plenty of straight men who would love to marry a woman who behaves like a 13-year-old, yeah. but I don't think that any of those men should be the romantic lead in a movie. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think it's supposed to be as a sort of presented as a contrast to Wendy, who's so serious and is just like thinking about our careers and like what next steps we should take. He talks about the fact that she ruined his life at 13 and ignored him for high school and he had a miserable high school experience. So there's probably a way he's kind of able to step himself back to that time when he was like last really happy and felt really content and if she's acting exactly as she acted as 13 he probably recognizes that i am however i think putting way more depth of thought into that particular through line than i think the movie does it is weird that he's very into a 13 year old girl who looks like jennifer garner also if he's worried about the fact that she once ruined his life getting involved with her two weeks before the wedding is not a great way to stop her from doing that again <laughs> Yeah, he really sets himself up. Like, the two of them do have extremely good chemistry together, though. And I do like that the movie takes a second after they kiss. Matt realizes what he's done, that he sort of kind of curls up in a little ball. And I always kind of forget that that scene doesn't just end right there. It's that Jennifer Garner then, like, leans over and puts her head on his shoulder. And I'm like, no, no. what? A, that's not really how a 13-year-old girl would react. <laughs> and B, it's not really giving him the space to deal with the fact that he's just cheated on his fiance at all. I had the exact same reaction. I loved his choices and that physicality and was uh, bemused by hers. Can we talk about her showing up at his wedding? Yeah. I mean, that's the point of the podcast. She vaguely sneaks in, but not really. I mean, it's more unbelievable that she was able to sneak out of the house just fully carrying that little dollhouse. <laughs> Oh, like no one says anything about that. She also then walks approximately five feet away from the wedding <laughs> <laughs> to have that moment. I mean, again, if you're looking at this from an outside perspective, this lady leaves the house and then just like walks five feet away and sits down. And all the guests are like right there, like presumably getting on with their wedding business. There's also a really sad moment in the scene where she gets to the top of the stairs and she sees Wendy getting dressed with all of her friends. And then she goes to the room with Mark Ruffalo, who is completely alone and has no friends. <laughs> his best man or his know. groomsmen he, or his parents like anyone I, yeah no one's helping him or with him or attending to him in any way even though it's his wedding as well so jenna bursts into mark's deep well of sadness and they have their final little confrontation i think this is actually a more affecting scene than most like it's it's still sort of at the same level as the rest of the film but both of these actors are so good and they're actually given a little bit more emotional material to work with and i I think it's pretty great, actually. Thoughts? I thought that it was 
perfectly fine. I was not super invested. I'm not going to lie. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. This is about us holding on to our own personal trash and sharing it with the world. And <laughs> I am definitely aware that this is not my most arty of the films that I've chosen. There is a real loneliness to Matt that I think is sort of baked into the character that I kind of don't know if you're supposed to think that he does have any friends because he said the only people he's worried about disappointing are Wendy and Wendy's family. Like he never says anything about himself or any of the people that have come there for him or anything like that. I mean, his character is wildly underexplored. It's interesting that like Jenna has done a great deal of development since being a teenager, but he's pretty much an iffy photographer. He was sad in high school. End of list. And I think that's what I mean when I say that Matt is probably responding to the 13-year-old Jenna because in a lot of ways, he's still that 13-year-old boy too. Most people who had terrible times in high school and are arty, like moved to New York and got cool. Matt kind of got cool, but mostly seems like he never really got over being 13. I also think that if he had become a different person, it would be really hard to justify Jenna still having a crush on him. Like he needs to be her 13-year-old crush. Otherwise, she has to develop a whole new relationship with him. That's really true. And there is definitely a thread at the beginning of this is that every little straight girl when she's young gets gets told like some boy develops a crush on her that is just not the kind of boy that she's ever going to like. And your mom tells you, oh, someday you're going to wish that you had dated that boy. And you're like, no, 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 at the time. And then finally, about the time that you're 30, you do realize that actual nice men are better than really terrible men. So they definitely have to make teenage Matt that kid already, which no boys really are at 13. Like teenage Matt has extremely good practical advice for Jenna. <laughs> like he says, he's like, it's the six girls. They're never going to accept you. Like they just want to be mean. I want to point out that his advice to her is empirically incorrect. She does get accepted into that group. Which girl do you think they kicked out? I think it was the like seven foot tall one at the back. I <laughs> am happy to report to you that I researched this. Shut up. And they kicked out Brie Larson when <gasps> Jenna is in the group shot. Brie Larson is not. We've zeroed in on the end here, and I want to talk about how this movie just sort of staples an end on. <laughs> we know what needs to happen. We know that she needs to marry him. And so the movie is like, do you want to see that happen? And we're like, yes. And the movie's <laughs> like, well, then here you go. She's going to be 13 for 10 seconds, and then we're just going to slam cut right back to that wedding that you were hoping for. Done. Also, it's going to take a quick moment for Maddie to say, wow, you really know what you're doing, which is extremely gross. It's gross the other way, too, because now she has lived as a 30-year-old woman for several weeks. She has a drinking habit now. Like, <laughs> <laughs> the movie really should end with him opening the door to the closet and her being like, Maddie. But no, the movie doesn't trust its main premise enough that these two people are really destined for each other, that it has to show you rather than let you believe that they must have gotten together. I think there's an almost Chekhov's gun aspect to it where we have seen Mark Ruffalo in the tuxedo already. So like, <laughs> he's gotta marry someone now. The audience is waiting for a marriage. And if we don't get it, then someone will pay. <laughs> and that person is Wendy. <laughs> Yeah, what, what is she doing now? Well, we don't need to know. We also don't know what Tom Tom is doing. Maybe the getting called a biatch when she was 13 really turned Lucy around. So now she's a totally good person too. 
I'm surprised they didn't actually shoehorn that in somehow that like now they're actually best friends and that like Lucy is also really nice now. Yeah, she was like the maid of honor at the wedding. She's a different hairdo to let you know that she's nice. She has good girl bangs. You know, we said we were going to talk a lot about Jennifer Garner and Judy Greer, and I don't think we've done it enough. I would just like to say again, they are both excellent. I just love seeing them interact, actually. Like they're funny together in the scenes that they're in. They're great. Can't say enough good about them. There's also one Judy Greer line that I would like to highlight uh, just before we wrap things up here. When she has the confrontation with Jenna about the sparkle poise twist debacle, she says, and I, I, I rewound this so that I could write it down because I don't understand how Judy Greer got the following sentence out of her mouth. You can wipe the doe-eyed Bambi watching his mother get shot and strapped to the back of a van from your face. It's a lot of sentence. And the fact that she manages to get it out is truly a triumph of the will. I was on the edge of my seat just seeing whether you would get to the end of it without stammering. There's a level of zaniness to this movie that I'm surprised that I like it. Basically, Jennifer Garner carries the film, and if it was in the hands of a lesser actor, it just probably wouldn't fly at all. As it stands, I love this little bag of trash, and I'm gonna hug it till the day I die. <laughs> Final thoughts from you, would you watch it again? I can see myself re-watching parts of this movie. I can't imagine that I would sit through the whole film by my own volition. If someone else put it on, I would watch it without complaint. It's neither my favorite nor least favorite movie. Okay, well, we will leave 13 going on 30 here. Where are we going on to next? Aubrey, I've never been more excited to hear that you have not seen a film. Okay. We are going to watch the 1989 Shelley Long vehicle, Troop Beverly Hills. <laughs> okay. Do you want to share with everyone what movie I thought this was? I thought it was like Road Trip with Tom Green. You did think that. It's not. We are staying in the aimed at young girls genre. And we are going back to the era, almost the exact year at which the beginning of this movie was set. Ah, so we'll get to see some actual 1980s garb and gear. I don't want to give anything away, but I will say that extreme costuming occasionally comes into play. <laughs> I've watched this movie a million times, and I can't wait to watch it again, even though I think it also falls in about the quality range of 13 going on 30. <laughs> okay, well, good. I'm glad our standards haven't changed. Thank you for listening. Please do all the podcasty things to our podcast and follow us on social media at Replaying Favorites on Instagram and at Replaying Faves, F-A-V-S, on Twitter. Well, I certainly look forward to watching Troop Beverly Hills. And yeah, I think that's it. I'm glad that we're going to leave this one in the past where it belongs. All right. See you next week. Bye. Bye. This is a theoretical Picket Fences podcast. <laughs> Each episode is a possible plot for, for Picket Fences, a show we have never seen. I can't wait. <laughs>